Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm here for my White House tour. Okay. Are you staying at the new Trump Hotel down the street at the old post office? No. Ah, too bad. If you stay there two nights or more, you get a bonus tour where we show you the dungeons where we keep Ted Cruz and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, I cannot afford that hotel. I'm doing an Airbnb. Is that still even legal? I know I was at a meeting where they said we were going to make Airbnb illegal. It's organized crime or something. People should stay in hotels with recognizable names. Can we start the tour? Like, what is that room over there? Is that a... Is that a cabinet meeting? That's the Roosevelt Room, but we sublet it to the Trump Organization. Those people are hearing about timeshare opportunities in the new Trump China properties. Who made that noise? I did. We all know how to make it. It's kind of a throat singing thing. Do you want to stop at the gift shop? Didn't we already pass the gift shop? We have eight of them in the White House now. This is the one Tiffany actually runs. Hi, Tiffany. Don't look so sad. Can I just stop you right there? This... This is the White House, one of the most potent symbols of American democracy, and you people have made it a den of thieves and money changers. It's, you know, it's really unbelievable the way you turn this into just another Trump profit center. I know, right? It wasn't easy. But once you lock up three or four law professors, the rest fall into line. I have to sit down. That's one of the Trump chairs we sell made by Kurdish involuntary workers in Turkey. They're on sale today. Let's walk down to the map room and I'll hook you up with a salesperson. I have to admit, it's really comfy. Well, I'm deciding. Here's a show on the problem of Trump's business interests. Also, a Fidel Castro story you haven't heard before and a moral response to acts of hate. And now he just found out emoluments were not a kind of mint. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I thought they were like Tic Tacs, which I know that uh, Donald Trump also likes. Uh, so I figured maybe he was just switching over to emoluments. Um, all right, we're going to talk about three different things today, as the introduction just suggested. A little bit later on the show, and this maybe is the one that I felt most powerfully over the weekend. Look, you know, we can debate about all kinds of things that are either right or wrong or in some kind of gray area, and we're going to. Uh, during the run-up to the Trump presidency, uh, talk about things like what we're going to talk about right in just a couple of seconds now, whether or not there are objectionable conflicts of interest between Trump's private business interests and uh, the job of the president. <clears throat> we talk about those things, lots of other things. There's some things about which there is no debate, and, and one of those is the rise of hate speech. Uh, I think the Southern Poverty Law Center has recorded something like 700 instances since the election of hate speech. Uh, and I mean, these these things where letters get sent to mosques saying that President Trump is going to help us cleanse America of you people, that kind of stuff. That that stuff, they're just it's just a non-starter. And we really do have to find some way to object about it. I'm not shy about saying that uh, this country is going to need to have an organized response because it's happening uh, at a quick rate. People feel very emboldened suddenly, the worst kinds of people. So we'll be talking about that with a theologian. And then lastly, we're going to tell you a story about Fidel Castro that is different from other stories that you may have heard over the weekend. Um, I, maybe I won't say anything more than that. I'll just um, I'll keep you in suspense as 
as President Trump would say, President-elect Trump, that is. All right, so we're going to begin with um, uh, a conversation with Drew Harwell, who reports on business for The Washington Post. But before we bring him aboard, um, just to kind of introduce you to this issue, which I'm sure you've been hearing about over the weekend, here's a little montage. If I become president, I couldn't care less about my company. I have Ivanka and Eric and Don sitting there. Run the company, kids. Have a good time. So you'll put your assets in a blind trust? I would put it in a blind trust. Well, I don't know if it's a blind trust if Ivanka, Don, and Eric run it, but is that a blind trust? I don't know. I'm very confident he's not breaking any laws. He has many lawyers, accountants, and advisors who tell him what he must do and what he can't do. All right. Well, there are things that you uh, can do that maybe you shouldn't do. Uh, and probably if you're going to base some of your decisions on a blind trust, you should know what one is. Uh, however, uh, there's so much more to say about this. And Drew Harwell is joining us right now. As I say, uh, Drew reports on business for The Washington Post. This is the kind of business that has occupied his attentions quite a bit recently. So welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, So just to get a sense of the kind of octopodan nature uh, of the Trump organization in a way that, I mean, it was reported on during the campaign uh, and it was part of some of his public utterances during the campaign. But there were so many issues going on during the campaign. I'm not sure how much it sunk in with any of us, just how big and sprawling his worldwide empire is. Um, Sometimes, of course, his empire consists of simply licensing his name someplace. But still, he's involved in, what, 18 to 20 countries at least? Yeah, that's right, at at the very least. And that that also includes, you know, the U.S., where he has lots of different interests from coast to coast. And yeah, it's one of those things where it's it's kind of the problem that was so big that we all didn't really see it during the campaign. And and, and we did some stories about it, the, the New York Times did some stories about it, but it was always sort of, you know, kind of pie in the sky, a, a potential problem for down the road. Now, you know, these conflicts of interest are, are real things that are going to be dealt with over the next four years in a very, you know, potentially risky way. But he has, you know, more than 100 companies he's working with in, in all of these countries. All of those have different goals, and sometimes those goals are sort of counter to what the president would want. So it, it's a big issue. It's not. There's, some of these goals are not only counter to what the president, meaning any president, would probably want, but some of them see, even seem counter to the rhetoric with, with which we associate Donald Trump. I mean, for example, he, uh, during the campaign, um, uh, portrayed Muslims and Muslim regimes as problematic, borderline, you know, dangerous. Uh, Most of his rhetoric uh, about Muslims was incredibly negative. On the other hand, you you look at what's going on with him in Turkey, and it seems as though he has a much more simpatico relationship with a sometimes repressive Turkish regime than you would expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and and Trump's name is is on buildings in in Indonesia, which has more Muslims than any country in the world. He his his name is in lights over Istanbul and, and Turkey, that has uh, plenty of sort of political strife to to go around, and you know lots of uh, sort of sensitive diplomatic financial ties with the U.S. as well. So I mean these are all th- these would be problems if if Trump was just a business person trying to do you know trying to do sort of corporate. Uh, profit-making in all these countries. They're especially problematic for not just him, but the rest of us when he's also, you know, at, at, at the highest office in, in America, sort of making these decisions and, and sort of filtering down the culture of, of how these diplomats and other, you know, U.S. officials should be dealing with these countries in, 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 in ways that may be opposed to what his business interests would rather. 
So let's take Turkey just for an example, because the other part of this, obviously, I mean, he's not sworn in as president yet, so uh, the rules are a little bit different. But um, one of the questions you have is, all right, so you've got these business interests, you've got this political leadership role in the United States. To what degree are they in conflict and to what degree can you benefit from, let's say, altering your political stance about something? So during the campaign, uh, some of Trump's rhetoric did inflame uh, the the Erdogan regime in Turkey. Uh, they had some negative stuff to say about his licensing deal there. And it did appear, I mean, we don't really know, but it did appear as though he altered his rhetoric about them and and got something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that company as well that, that owns the building, Trump Towers in Istanbul, also has sort of changed their rhetoric in, in, in the aftermath of the failed coup this summer and, and these increasing government crackdowns where, you know, they're a huge media company and they're, they're increasingly sort of uh, parroting some, some lines that the Erdogan regime and, and the Turkish government at large would, would like to sort of push forward. So when you see that, that love connection there between Trump making lots of money off, off this building and, and a company that's growing closer to the Turkish government, um, whether by force or by desire, you start to question, you know, how, how strong are these ties? Are, is, is Mr. Trump or, or his kids or, you know, his cabinet going to, um, you know, make decisions that potentially save that very, you know, lucrative revenue stream? Are they going to, you know, back away from potential uh, measures that could uh, uh, sever the ties between the U.S. And, and Turkish government, or at least make it not as fun to deal with. Uh, you know, th- these, this is the gray area we, we, we inhabit. We haven't really had a president who has had this many conflicts. So all we're sort of left is with questions. And, and the, 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 the real criticism is that Mr. Trump isn't really giving us any reason to, to not ask these questions. Right. In other words, if he drew some hard, fast, bright lines and said, I won't step over them, we w- you and I probably wouldn't be having quite this conversation. We might not be having any conversation at all. But let's take another example from your reporting. So Deutsche Bank is Trump's biggest lender. He's a very highly leveraged uh, business individual. Uh, but uh, that's the number one lender to him. And, and so this isn't theoretical or speculative at all. Deutsche Bank is involved with the U.S. Justice Department right now. Do you want to explain that? Sure. Uh, basically, yeah, Deutsche Bank, huge European financial institution, but they also lent uh, a lot of loans to the U.S. housing market during the housing crisis. A lot of these were toxic loans. And so they're one of the m- many banks that has sort of been investigated for these abuses, and they're currently sort of n- negotiating a-, a big settlement with the Department of Justice that could potentially be as much as a $14 billion fine for the bank. So that's you know, a potentially bank-busting penalty that that the bank would rather not deal with. Um, So they're currently negotiating that now. It it could be $14 billion. It could be $4 billion down the road when when the settlement is finally agreed upon. But, you know, on the same token, it's it's Trump's biggest lender. He has an incentive to keep them loaning to him or his kids or his company because – they're one of the few Wall Street banks that has still lent to to the Trump company after a number of bankruptcies. So there's a potential, you know, craving for simpatico between Trump and Deutsche Bank. And meanwhile, of course, as, as President Trump will, uh, you know, appoint people to the Department of Justice, people who could potentially steer that investigation and, in, in, uh, you, you know, a, a certain way that, that Trump may desire. So here, you go, I mean, this is 
this is Trump's finances and his, you know, um, responsibility to be an independent arbiter, to, to put in people who will, you know, sort of do the right thing for the Department of Justice. Those two are colliding here um, almost more than anywhere. And this is a case that's still ongoing. We really don't know when the settlement will be reached. And even if Trump doesn't tilt the scale and, and the settlement comes out, you know, less than the $14 billion we've heard, the, the, the perception there is going to be, well, what if, you know, did Trump get get involved in this process? The perception is almost as, as bad sometimes as the conflicts, uh, you know, the real effects, because it undermines sort of trust. It undermines our ability to believe that, you know, Trump was doing the right thing for the country. Now, in the middle of his transition, uh, one of the things that has uh, briefly interrupted it was a meeting with uh, business partners or business associates from India. India is a place where uh, Donald Trump is also doing business. So uh, tell us about the Trump Tower Mumbai. Yeah, Trump Tower, Mumbai, and, and there's another project in Pune, India. Uh, India is, I think, the biggest you know country that Trump has interest in outside of the U.S. There's obviously a, a growing middle class there. There's uh, there's you know a large luxury contingent in in cities like Mumbai. So you know there are business partners that the Trump company have worked with to sort of put the Trump name in lights uh, above uh, some of these projects like the Mumbai project. And meanwhile, you know during this transition period, Trump has also met with some of the folks who were involved in that project and who have, you know, reasons to to do business with Mr. Trump and who are now seeing, you know, a grand potential uh, success in having fomented that relationship even before he was the president-elect. So, you know, he's had uh, the, the folks who are working on that company up to his Trump Tower penthouse on the days after the election. There's clearly been a strong relationship there. Even one of them was uh, seen with Eric Trump, um, at Trump's son, at, at, at the election night sort of celebration. So clearly there's a relationship there, and it's a relationship that you wouldn't necessarily see from an independent kind of third-party vetted politician who may be you know, tasked to make these kinds of independent decisions. Um, I'm talking to Drew Harwell for The Washington Post right now. Um, I want to ask you also just about reporting this story. Uh, one thing we still don't have, obviously, are those uh, pesky tax returns that we couldn't get during the campaign. Um, in terms, And they may contain things involving countries that uh, neither you nor anybody else who's reported on this so far uh, knows about. There may be little surprises waiting in there. But in terms of assembling the picture that you and other journalists have assembled, is it are you just sort of running around looking for different pieces uh, of the jigsaw puzzle? Is there any central place where, as a matter of disclosure, all this stuff has accumulated? Yeah, a lot of it is running around because you're right. The tax returns are not there, and there are an incredible, uh, you know, amount of detail in, in those returns that we just can't see, including foreign accounts, including if he has money in Russia, yada yada. But we've we've sort of cobbled together some stuff from the personal financial disclosures that you know most politicians are expected to file during their during their uh, campaign. So you know, in those you see the the scale of the more than 500 sort of company business interests that. Trump is involved with. You can kind of make the connections. Here, this one is in Mumbai. This one is in Istanbul. You can start to map out the scale of them. But there's still so much we don't know. And, and you know, there's still so much that Mr. Trump could uh, make public and, and still hasn't. So uh, it, it's, it's been a lot of, you know, making calls with people in other countries, some of our correspondents who, who can help us do some field work. But there, there's still such a cloud of sort of mystery over, over the real size of his empire and how many of these conflicts there are out there. 
So I think a lot of people looking at a situation like this would think, all right, so he was a businessman. He had what he had. He had these existing projects. Some of them were uh, moving along, moving through a pipeline uh, while he was running for president. Nothing he could really do about that. Just got to let it play out and figure it, figure out what to do about that later. But based on your reporting, Drew Harwell, that's not strictly the case. In other words, there are things that have put in, been put in motion while he's been running for president. I think in your reporting, uh, Saudi Arabia kind of jumps out uh, as an instance of that. Tell us what you've learned about uh, what's been going on between Trump and, and Saudi Arabian business interests. Yeah, the Saudi case is, is another sort of uh, reflection of, of, of the many questions we still sort of have. But while Trump was on the campaign trail at a rally in Alabama, um, sort of making these things, that, that same day, there were, you know, uh, four to eight companies, uh, four are still active, but eight were made in total, um, sort of based in uh, Jeddah, or Jeddah, which is, you know, the second biggest city in Saudi Arabia, has a, has a ton of money. It's an oil-rich kingdom. And so the... The, the names are very similar to sort of other hotel projects that Trump has had in, in cities like Mumbai. And it, here it is attached to, you know, the, this kingdom in the Middle East that has a lot of, you know, uh, sensitive sort of diplomatic ties with the U.S. And that is a country that even Mr. Trump himself has sort of falsely claimed was, was one of the main investors of the 9-11 attacks and who, you know, attacked, you know, Hillary Clinton many times for accepting money from the kingdom. And yet here we we have this potential business interest, but who he's partnered with on that, what he wants to do, any money that he's gotten from that, Trump won't say, and no public filings sort of reveal. So, you know, we're, we're still sort of looking for for what what exactly he's seeking to do in these places that uh, the U.S. has really, you know, important interest. But we know that in some of these countries, you know, permits have moved ahead in the trans in the transition period on projects that has the Trump name attached. Were those potentially pushed through by, you know, state officials who wanted to keep keep the interest, you know, tight and strong with the president-elect? These are the questions we're sort of dealing with in, in Saudi Arabia and at home, too. Yeah, and in your reporting, one of the things that you pointed out was on the same day that he registered four companies to conceivably do business in Saudi Arabia, he gave a speech uh, to a rally in Alabama where he said, Saudi Arabia, I get along with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend $40 million, $50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. <laughs> so in a way, one of the difficulties of trying to expose anything about Donald Trump is that he's usually exposed it you know, well before you even thought of getting interested in it and, and, and talks about it with no shame whatsoever. So this, is, this puts us into the, the grayer area that pr probably is less a matter of the fine reporting that you've done so far, Drew Harwell, and, and trying to figure out exactly how this is all going to proceed. I mean, probably a lot of it is going to be in Congress's lap. Uh, we all know Mr. Trump has said there's no such thing as a conflict of interest uh, for the president of the United States. I mean, many legal scholars have weighed in to say, well, I mean, there, there may be ways in which a president is permitted to do certain things uh, that would be prohibited for other people. That doesn't mean it's not a conflict of interest or that it's not a problem. We, we, there are laws. There are, there, there's laws against bribery, for example, uh, which would apply to the president of the United States. But I would assume this is all kind of terra incognita looking forward into the mist. I mean, we don't really know. Uh, or have any indication, except maybe from individual people, like maybe somebody like Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren. Like, what's going to happen next? Do you have any idea, like how this is going to get thrashed out? It really depends on how um, how much force the the 
the, the folks in Congress want to take with this kind of thing. We, we, we've seen the, the Democrat side of it, and, and the Democrats are clearly going to make hay of this, and, and potentially for good reason, and, and sort of pointing out these conflicts of interest. This is going to be a target that's going to be on Trump's back for as long as these, these are issues. So how much will the GOP tolerate? Obviously, they're, they're in power in the House and the Senate. Um, you know, but they have reasons to sort of question these things, too. And, and they're not necessarily, you know, part of the, the Trump organization umbrella that would benefit from some of these business conflicts. And they have, you know, the potential to be, to, to you know, be endangered by, by some of these things because uh, they don't want to look like they're, you know, in conflict with the Saudi Arabian government doing things that are against the American people. So, um, you know, they're, Mr. Trump has sort of been right in that there are conflict of interest laws that sort of uh, affect the most government officials, including elected officials that don't don't affect the presidency, that don't say he has to put his assets into a blind hut, blind trust. But there's a tradition of these sorts of things that uh, lots of presidents in the past have sort of followed and, and for good reason. And, you know, it, like you said earlier, I mean, there's a difference between something being legal and something being totally 100 percent proper and ethical. And, and we've had sort of advisors uh, on, on ethics and the law on, on both uh, party side saying, uh, you know, the things that Mr. Trump and his family are doing right now, uh, you know, are, are concerning and, and could be concerning for the entire, you know, term of his presidency. So, it, you know, anybody can sue a business. So I think we'll be suing lawsuits on, on that side. But it, it's also sort of curious, what will what will Congress do? Will, will, will Republicans can continue to sort of uh, tolerate these sorts of things or will they speak out? A um, couple of quick last questions. Um, you know, there have not been anything other than the most crude and fumbling explications from Donald Trump about how he kind of understands, you know, any kind of firewall that might exist. Uh, and and the one which we heard in the little montage at the beginning was this notion that, well, if he lets his kids handle all this stuff, is that a firewall? First of all, it's not really something that he should be asking as a question. He should probably <laughs> know the answer to that. But I mean, I think one of the things that would be worrisome about that as an explanation is that Ivanka Trump has been part of at least three conversations that he's had with foreign leaders. And he's named to The New York Times Jared Kushner as somebody who might be, you know, maybe his point man uh, on Middle East peace. Um, that doesn't suggest that they are going to live in this very separate realm as far apart from the government as possible. No, it doesn't. And and it sort of suggests that, um, uh, you know, Mr. Trump doesn't see or, or finds it's it's not really important to, to sort of create that firewall because, you know, he said his kids will be you know, really important parts of, of his company. He said they they will sort of lead it, manage the day-to-day. And yet, yeah, Ivanka has said in uh, on meetings with uh, the prime minister of Japan and, and with with other countries, you know, his kids still have relationships with, with investors and, and government officials in other countries. Um, and, and meanwhile, they're on, you know, the, the executive committee of his transition team, sort of helping him figure out some of the most important positions in the Trump White House. And, you know, we, it, it's clear why, why, why these are issues. You know, these are issues because his, his business and his, his politics and his policy are, are totally one and the same right now, and, and there's no division at all. Um, but, 
you know, we can maybe give him time. We can maybe expect that lawyers will tell him to, to strengthen this firewall as we get closer to January 20th. But right now, we're just not seeing any sort of encouraging signs that these are going to be separate. If, if anything, they're going to be maybe closer than ever. All right. Last quick question. Um, you know, we said the tax returns aren't out. One of the reasons he gives for the tax returns never making their appearance is that he's being audited by the IRS. Well, he's about to appoint the top leadership of the IRS. Similarly, uh, as you've pointed out, uh, he has uh, a case uh, with the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which is looking at uh, one of his Vegas business interests. He will be appointing people to the NLRB. Uh, I would imagine once again, I mean, it, a lot of it depends on how much Congress gets its backup about this stuff, but this is an unaccustomed level of conflict. Yeah, I mean, we've never really had it in a in a president, and when we've had sort of presidents in the in the past who have been very rich or had many business interests, they, they've almost always given them into a blind trust or or sold them or made some division. Here we have, you know, Trump literally tapping the people who will be um, appraising his property for potential legal penalties in D.C. He's just opened this luxury hotel where he's both the landlord and the tenant. So you can imagine how fun that would be to be the federal official sort of renegotiating rent with, with the president. Um, all these all these cases where we're just at a totally new, un- unprecedented um, quagmire here of, of seeing the president be on both sides in an incredible position to sort of improve his business interests uh, success while, you know, being in the Oval Office. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of questions. It's going to be a, an interesting four years. Well, Drew Harwell, thanks for being on today. You guys are doing great reporting. I want to say that even though I'm a fellow journalist, I spent $99 this weekend on a digital subscription to the Washington Post. Yes. So go tell right. go tell Jeff. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll run over there now. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks tell much. him happy Cyber Monday. He got 99 <laughs> bucks of my money. All right, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, when we come back, we'll be talking about a different kind of question, maybe a more pressingly moral question after this. So that's a little bit of how America sounds, parts of America, hopefully small parts of America. But it's a little bit of how America sounds post-election day. There are a lot of people who might have been a little bit more quiet uh, and reticent about their prejudices who are speaking in a very loud voice. I heard over the weekend about an incident in West Hartford in which uh, a young uh, Latino-American woman uh, from a family that I know uh, was harassed in a similar way. People driving by in a car saying, you know, go back to where you came from, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, quite often, they, when this happens, people cite the candidacy of Trump. And we had some very alarming letters written to mosques uh, in California, both in the Bay Area and in Southern California over the weekend, which not only um, threatened and and disparaged uh, Muslims, but uh, also cited the presidency of Trump as an indication uh, that mm, things can be done. Uh, so, you know, I'll just take a personal moment before I bring the guest into this. But 
you know, this stuff <laughs> really can't stand. You know, we can have long conversations about whether he's got conflicts of business interests and whether or not Steve Bannon is a appropriate person to be a senior counselor in, counselor in the White House. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can get debated out. And, and uh, there's some things about which we can afford to have a wait and see attitude. But these aren't that these are not among them. Uh, the degree to which at this point, uh, Muslims, uh, Mexicans, other Latinos, Jews uh, and African-Americans have all been subjected to a, maybe a, a heightened level of invective. Uh, since since election day is something which as a society we have to repudiate i kind of would like the president also the president elect that is to repudiate it much more emphatically uh than he has so far uh but we want to talk a little bit more about this and and how uh how it, it how what how it connects i guess uh to the world of theology it correct connects very powerfully for me uh, joining us is jennifer kalin uh, associate professor of assistant professor of religious studies at iona college thanks for being with us today thanks for having me so you know this is i don't know i was sitting in church on sunday thinking about all this stuff and thinking you know there's there's not a there's not a huge gray area about the right what the right thing to do or how the right what the right way is to respond but as you're teaching this uh, as you're interacting with young minds about this what kinds of conversations are you having um very difficult ones frankly uh because especially this college age of exploration and um, and oftentimes rebellion um, against what they're being taught at home. They're very difficult conversations as they wrestle with uh, the questions of ethics, um, and not just ethics, but what turns into uh, moral behaviors, really. Um, you know, one of the, speaking of uh, being in church on Sunday, we just began the season of Lent as Christians, mm-hmm. and that's a season of, of hope and, and love and joy and peace. Um, and yet in that season, we are wrestling with these questions of, of hate speech. So one of the things that has gone on in, in campuses, um, you know, is, is that notion of safe, safe spaces, safer spaces. Um, it seems to me that, um, you know, with the kinds of things you heard in the montage, the kinds of things I was talking about in the introduction, the world got uh, less ostensibly safe, although I would argue that the world was never that safe a place, that it's an admirable thing to want college campuses to have safe spaces. But the reality is, you know, that that to behave as a moral person and to insist uh, on, on better treatment of other people always comes with a certain amount of risk. I don't know what's your take on that. No, I would I would agree with that. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I appreciate the terminology there of safer spaces, right? Because safe space takes a lot of time and trust and effort uh, to create, and so a space is not inherently uh, safe, unfortunately. But uh, in our ivory towers, as they call them, right, they are spaces where we can at least engage in these kinds of debates and conversations, um, and generally they are done uh, in a manner that is productive, um, but to have that type of confrontation, even in these safe spaces, is risky, right? Because it reveals something about both of the individuals, um, which is one of the things that I try to move past, especially with young people, that these issues are not uh, necessarily about individuals, right? I've heard this often in theological circles that hurting people hurt people, right? And so to get beyond kind of the hate speech and what people are saying and get to what the issue or the problem uh, really is for that individual is, is a difficult step. 
uh, to take, but it's a necessary step to take to move beyond uh, kind of this place of hurt and anger into a place of peacemaking and solution finding. And a lot of that looks involves looking beyond our individual circumstances to kind of uh, build on the point that you're making. I, I've been reading this weekend, uh, this guy Shane Claiborne is kind of a radical theologian, and uh, he wrote uh, that the love that he saw expressed uh, in America after 9-11, uh, quote, simply reflected the borders and allegiances of the world. We got farther and farther from Jesus's vision, which extends beyond our rational love and the boundaries we have established. And he's talking about the fact that, you know, he could see people uh, loving the families of 9-11 victims, uh, loving soldiers who fell in battle later, but not understanding how to love, say, Iraqi people, Iraqi people who who died uh, as a result of our military actions and who, from a theological perspective, you know, an an Iraqi civilian deserves every bit as much love as a U.S. soldier or somebody who died in the World Trade Center attack. But that's still an incredible challenge, I think, maybe just for human beings, but also for Americans, we're not used to we, because of our notion of exceptionalism. We're not used to thinking past, you know, the the boundaries of our own skin. Sure, sure, but uh, but it's always kind of been in our social movements to move towards this kind of ethical. A community of love, right? So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. espoused this beloved community, but um, he did so knowing that it would mean we would have to change our souls, right? We would have to change the soul of this country and the, the lives that we we live. But as a result of nonviolent action, one could create this type of beloved community. Um, and, and that is still possible, right? In the wake of um, our president-elect uh, in kind of the movement of the alt-right and uh, the hate speech that has come about as a result of this election, which is not new. It's just publicly uh, more public at this point. Um, it can awaken a counter-movement, if you will, kind of can awaken this beloved community that was very much a part of the rhetoric of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Yeah, although, I mean, first of all, I'm completely in agreement with everything that you say, except that, you know, when I'm on social media, which is a very bad place to explore any kind of serious notion, but it's the place a lot of notions get uh, explored. When I put forth that idea that that Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi and Jesus are part of a tradition uh, of saying you know, that you, you do have to love the people who are the most difficult people for you to love. You almost have to look at these incredibly difficult people as gifts from God, as a chance for you to expand the limits of your soul. Uh, you know, so people who are really, really pissing you off right now uh, are, in fact, the people that you should feel most uh, uh, empowered and and obligated almost to love. You know, people people who are really down with the whole idea of the Reverend Martin Luther King, they they, don't, they have not absorbed that message. <laughs> you try to tell them about that and they go, oh, well, no, I, I'm not going to do that. Those people are jerks or, or they usually use a much worse than, word than that. It's, it's a hard, you know, at least I think it's very, very hard for most people who absorb the kind of thing you're talking about right now. Absolutely. I mean, it certainly has been hard for me um, to to kind of get to this place um, and to be reminded to hold on to uh, the hope of developing this type of, of vision. But I, in the meantime, I think it's also important to acknowledge um, kind of where we are, right? And so uh, Judith Butler, a philosopher, uh, in her uh, essay, Excitable Speech, uh, writes about what hate speech does to us and how it, it wounds us. Uh, but she also talks about how it creates a 
space, um, right, for us to change kind of the atmosphere, to kind of change that hate language and use it for a different purpose. And so um, for the people who can't quite get to I love uh, my enemy um, at this point, I think it's okay to do something. And sometimes that something is as simple as, you know, what we're now calling hashtag activism. Um, and I, I kind of view that as a form of education. If you want to repost a story to educate people on issues of racism or white privilege or issues of sexism, um, and I think that's also an important way for people to move past um, kind of the paralysis that hatred can cause and move towards doing something, which uh, a lot of times can lead us to being able to open up a dialogue. And again, I think it's also about not individuals, um, because that's what's most hurtful when we think of it as um, someone shouted this explicative to my friend or to my neighbor. But when we get behind that, kind of what Buddhist practice teaches us to do, um, kind of putting that positive energy of love out there, we can see that, again, that that hurt might be coming from a completely different place. One, that education can open the door to a productive conversation, perhaps. Um, this has been so great to talk to you. Uh, and speaking of starting a dialogue, I, I hope you come back. Uh, lots of other things I want to talk to you about. Jennifer Kalin, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Iona College. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have a very special guest in studio, one of your favorites, to tell you a story about Fidel Castro. A story I can guarantee you is unlike the other stories you heard this weekend. Cyber Monday, but I resent the Russian hacking of my Amazon account. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Executive producer Katie Tolarski appeared in the intro, and our interns are Krusty and Musty Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Zeppo Castro. Follow everything we do on the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. On tomorrow's show, a fresh look at the A-word. The real A-word, not something else that begins with A. And now, back to Colin. Yes, we are going to do that show tomorrow. We are going to do a show, a show about that very bad word, the A word, and about the people to whom it is frequently applied, which is, certainly does not include my in-studio guest right now. You just heard about him. Uh, he's our beloved Bill Curry. Uh, you've read his work in Salon. Uh, now read it in The Daily Beast. Um, the, but the, the reason— The nicest Bill, thing you've ever said of yeah. me in— well, it was— yeah. I mean, in decades. Right. But, yeah, thank um, you. It's quite so, lovely. It's so, a nice moment. Um, so the reason that you're here is because uh, any number of years ago, uh, you had an interaction with Fidel Castro, and not a fleeting interaction with with Fidel Castro, but one that went on, what, 11, 11 and a half hours, right? It, it, what it, year was this? It, this was in 1989, uh, the year before I ran for comptroller. And uh, I w went to Havana. I was there for about a week. And uh, I had uh, we had a, a meeting set up with him, and it began at 9 o'clock at night. He's kind of a night owl slash insomniac. Mm-hmm. And it started at nine, and it went on um, till about eight in the morning. So, uh, and, and it went on till eight in the morning, partly because yeah. you and he were engaged in some well, kind so of borderline argument. There, 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 there was well, we, we, there were these moments, but it was. It, it was I learned so much uh, uh, in the course of that week there, especially the visit with him. But uh, one, I did sort of go back and forth with him. I debated mm -hmm. most things he said, at least rebutted, and you could tell the the price you pay for living in a dictatorship that. 
around the, the, the room were all of his staff people, and they just looked so anxious, whether for my be, on my behalf or their own. But you could just tell that no one did that with him. And, of course, nobody, no matter how smart you are, you can't stay smart without people, you know, uh, challenging your ideas. But it, but anyway, about midway through it, though, he we took a break, and everybody had that real sweet coffee they make down there. Mm-hmm. And he brought me into his private office, and the two of us went into his private office, and he showed me. First of all, he didn't show me. I saw, first of all, on his desk, on yellow uh, 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 notepad paper, all of the reports from the sugar harvests, field mm-hmm. by field. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the opposite of the grand delegating style. This was a guy who took the reports in the field, and the main thing being that the people in the field would get the accountability. He then took me into another room to show me a, a large uh, – we'd been talking about uh, 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 housing, and I at that time had done a couple of subdivisions in a condominium complex. And, and so he brought me in to show me this development he wanted to build that he was hoping when, if the embargo ever got lifted, he wanted to build this huge tourist uh, attraction. It looked, very, it looked like Legos there, but it looked very nice. Uh, and uh, and then because of that, it sort of sil- the conversation swung into this thing about housing, and around dawn he says, "Let's go for a ride." <laughs> and so, which we, could have been meant to to a prison camp. That's right. That's right. It could have been because of the uh, because of my earlier prior, challenging prior remarks. Yeah. And we went out and we looked at a construction site where these micro brigades they were called these volunteers from across the country came to work on helping to build this uh, housing. And that was something I'll just say that you couldn't have faked it. I've been, you know, I worked in the White House and in my own campaigns. I've been in cam- worked in campaigns all over the uh, country and the world. And and the the warmth, the the way people poured out to him and touched him, and how comfortable they felt, mm. and how he spoke to them, th- that would be almost impossible to fake. Yeah, which was not everybody. We should say too. I mean, you know, um, no. I, I saw lots of things there that I liked, but I was never for a moment unaware of the fact that because I am genetically wired for dissent, mm. if I lived there, I'd be living in prison. Right. And so that's, the, you know, that's that's the other piece. Or you could have tried to float over to Florida or something. I could have floated to Florida or I could have escaped because I'm that kind of guy, that kind of County Monte, kind of Monte Cristo thing. I, I think I've really got that going. But I want to make sure we do justice to this Dawn caravan uh, that you went on. So this is like him in a car with like one or I'm two guys? Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's got a driver and a security guy. Uh, and were you leaving Havana? Where, did you no, go? no, we were in Havana. No, no, we never left Havana. Uh, I barely left it the whole time I was there, in fact. But um, And it was uh, three or four miles you know, from, from his office. Yeah. And uh, and we got there. And, and, and again, they also couldn't have faked the shock on the workers' faces. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like 6.30 in the morning. And who shows up but the president? Uh, and uh, it was an extraordinary thing. I still have a couple of photographs of it. It was like and that the one time Ella Grasso visited the press room. Uh, yeah. We were shocked. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to say. So um, not that there's any other basis for comparison. So um, one thing that you wound up concluding that I've never heard anybody else say, and some of this I think is a result of your subsequent visit, visit to El Salvador where, where you were talking to, was it Ruben Zamora that Ruben you were talking Zamora, to? Ruben yeah. Zamora, yes. So, the opposition leader. leader. Yes, yeah, so the Democratic Convergence Party. So you, you, you and Ruben Zamora concluded that you and the two of you plus Fidel Castro had something in common. What was that? A couple of months later, um, and I would just like to interject, my friend Lindsay Madison, who's since retired, but who was an extraordinary activist, the most interesting person in Washington never heard of. And it was because of Lindsay that I got to end up being with Castro and being in a war zone in El Salvador and polling in Nicaragua and being in West Berlin the week the wall came down and 
working with Willie Brand and all these other opportunities that came that never would have come to me ever otherwise. You're kind of, you're kind of zealot. And it, yeah, that's right. That's right. It was like a, it's like a Forrest Gump thing. I'm in all those pictures because <laughs> uh, I, I ran a lot. You know, I gave you zealot and you yeah. insisted on yeah, Forrest yeah, Gump. No, no, Let's let the down. record show that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so a couple of months after I'm in Havana, I'm with Ruben. And what I'd noticed in the meeting, apart from Castro's brilliance, uh, was I mean, he's really one of the smartest people I ever sat in a room with, uh, and was that he constantly uh, uh, referenced not political science, certainly not Marxism, but the New Testament, and that he was as conversant in Scripture as any politician, as genuinely conversant as any politician I'd ever met. And he not only it, it, he enjoyed throwing it back at people like me who were criticizing. I criticized the wages of his workers, and he came back about materialism and how it's you know it's. Instead of making the sort of Marxist materialist argument, he, he talked about the empty souls of, consu- of, of, of workers in a consumer society and quoted a great deal of scripture and, and to support it. So a month later, I'm sitting with Ruben Zamora in the courtyard out back of his house, next to his house where his brother had been assassinated. And we were, looking, we were right in the courtyards right next to each other. And, and we began talking. And, and it turned out that Ruben had had dinner with Castro uh, at around the same time, a month or so before I had. And so we both began just comparing notes. And what we both realized was that the three of us had something in common, which is that we'd all been educated by Jesuits. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Castro, he didn't matriculate at Florida, but he visited. He, but he was in Jesuit preparatory school and college yeah, in, yeah. In, in Cuba. So his entire education was uh, – the bulk of his education, pardon me, was, was with Jesuits. And he was clearly paying more attention than he understood. And it showed not only in his forensic skills and the debating part of it, but he – I, I began to see the degree to which his view of the world was rooted in values he acquired there. He misapplied many of them, uh, but it was in a part of the. And I just say one other thing about about Cuba itself and the society they created. And, and again, I wouldn't be enjoying any of these fruits because I'd be in jail. But I thought of it during the Elian Gonzalez uh, thing shortly thereafter, and I thought if you know they said you know, where where would he be happier? And of course, with his natural family is the first answer, but. Uh, this impoverished island nation uh, has a higher literacy rate than the United States, has uh, universal child care, has universal health care, not the high-end stuff. You'd want to come here for that, but for the day-to-day health care. It has lower crime rates. I, you know, I grew up in Northern Hartford. I, I know what it feels like to be in a city where people feel safe and where they don't. Uh, drug rates. If, if, if he was going to be a lower middle class or working class kid for the first 20 years of his life, he was going to be better off there. If his parents were making 125 k or more, they'd be better off here. And if he ever had a political thought in his head, of course, he'd be better off here. Mm-hmm. But the, what they had accomplished there was simply irrefutable uh, on examination. And while I was there, I could go wherever I wanted. Uh, I had a couple of days where I was completely just myself and one other person with me and a, and a guide. And he was instructed and did. I, he went whatever I asked. And I purposely mixed it up. And I visited child care centers and doctor's offices and went throughout the city, and it was quite striking. I want to go over uh, three things really quickly. Uh, he took you out to this uh, uh, this site where he wanted to uh, put this development. He didn't try to like sell you a timeshare or anything like that, right? Well, I, I, I have one. Yeah, I haven't been right. able to get back down, We're always kind of a that's sucker for things yeah. like that. <laughs> um, and um, back to the, to the Jesuit thing. So this is really kind of interesting. And this is the way uh, Castro talked about it. He said that he studied uh, as a young uh, person, as a kid, at a place called Be- Belen, I think. He yes. said it was very dogmatic. 
uh, and he described himself as having been a restless student. But he also said the Jesuits, quote, influenced me with their strict organization, their discipline and their values. They influenced my sense of justice. So that tends to back up, you know. It was the overwhelming impression. Again, you know, so I got to meet him once, but I was with him for 11 hours. And Mm. for 10 of it, we talked about politics. And so a couple of those impressions I really felt quite confident of. And that was the main thing that that to hear him speak and and defend his socialist uh, government for 11 hours, he did it almost entirely with reference to Judeo-Christian values replete with scriptural references. And part of it was just a kind of toying with us to throw our own values back of it. But part of it was clearly every so often you felt it in his voice that, that this was something he believed. Mm-hmm. This is something he believed. Well, also, as you and I have both said many times, you kind of have to twist Jesus around like a pipe cleaner to get him to support capitalism. You know, I mean, you have to sort of really do an awful lot of work. There's no question. It's, I mean, <laughs> no. Every, the entire New Testament is stories of inclusion. Uh, it's uh, prostitutes, Roman soldiers, tax collectors, le- le- lepers. Everyone's forgiven. Everyone's included. And, uh, and, and a good quarter of the stories about are about servants who got paid as much as the ones who came earlier and about people having to give up their fortunes and about all worldly things coming to rot and working on the soul and loving one another unconditionally. That's that's the message. And so clearly what, what Ruben and I <laughs> concluded in that courtyard a couple months later was that he'd been paying very close attention. This is the first I've ever heard a quote. This is the first quote I've ever heard from him acknowledging that. But it is. I mean, it's one of the ironies of life that it's for Fidel Castro even not cool to be a Christian communist, and it is cool to be a Christian capitalist, and that doesn't really make any sense in terms of actually what gets said there. But anyway, um, very quickly, uh, last question. We don't have time to talk about the Arthur Wood story, uh, which is a family story of yours. Really I, have a, good I, have a, story. I have a screenplay in development right now. Anyway, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. um, but very quickly, Am I getting a piece of that. You didn't happen to run into no. to Victor Herrera down there, though, right? No, That's no. the other. <laughs> you and Victor Herrera, <laughs> yeah, the two people really. who probably have spent the most. And maybe yeah. Arthur Woods yeah. from Connecticut has spent yeah. the most time. Liked, and this is the point at which I'd like to mention that it was a State Department sanctioned trip right. that I was on with a couple of other – with a couple of people who had been ambassadors under Carter uh, uh, going. And we were exploring some uh, some of the ways in which we might move toward uh, a relaxation of tensions. But uh, it, one of the, the other thing about uh, uh, Castro that was clear to me was that he didn't want to – he wanted to end the embargo, but he didn't want to end it then because he he realized how disruptive it would be to his own power. All right, we have to stop uh, there. But Victor Herrera, by the way, was one of the people involved in the famous Wells Fargo yeah, robbery. As opposed to me, I was not involved in the famous Wells well, Fargo. Well, nothing's market. ever it been was proven. Just Victor, yeah, nothing's ever been proven. Yeah. Um, but Notice I've never how seen the name tripped off Collins' tongue. Oh, you know, <laughs> I'm looking for Victor eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Call me, man. Castro is the leader of Cuba, Fidel Castro say no. Batista, tell me why you surrender, Fidel Castro say no. Castro is a real woman. I get that Castro's legacy will be complicated, but I think we can all agree that he could have been a lot worse for the world. He could have used a private email server. <laughs>